I've chosen Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5 and 28 through 31 as the Old Testament reading today, mainly to draw your attention to uh, this feature in the Old Testament where prophets looked forward to the age of the Messiah, uh, the age after the Messiah has come. And when they looked forward to it and predicted it and spoke of it, they oftentimes referred to that age as being an age where the people of God would be nourished in the wilderness again and where things would happen in the wilderness, where salvation would come from the wilderness and the people of God would be in the wilderness. It's actually quite a frequent thing that we see in the Old Testament. And as you will see, it will become significant for our consideration of Revelation chapter 12 today. So Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5 and 28 through 31. Here we read the word of Isaiah the prophet as he brings comfort to the people of Israel who were not doing so well in that time. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So pay attention to two things in particular. The mention of the wilderness in the age of the Messiah, and also the mention of God carrying his people with wings like eagles. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 12. I'd like to read the whole chapter. We are going to conclude our consideration of this very significant chapter today, so I'd like to have the whole thing in mind, even though the sermon will be most concerned with only verses 13 through 17. Revelation 12, starting in verse 1. Hear now the word of God and John's uh, vision, uh, an account of the vision that John saw. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now... War arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his, his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. 
And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a, ri- like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep away her with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea." I've been very blessed by this 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. I I know that many of you have been blessed by it as well, given the feedback that I've heard from you. And really, it should come as no surprise that this particular chapter be particularly illuminating. That is the response I have heard from a lot of you. It's as if light bulbs have gone off. You say, I think I get it. You know, this just makes so much sense uh, to understand Uh, the book of Revelation in this way, we should remember that its purpose, the purpose of Revelation 12, is to pull back the curtain a bit more for us than what it has been pulled back so far, so that we might know something of the spiritual battle that rages in the heavenly realm, this ancient and invisible conflict between God and Satan, the elect angels and the fallen angels, has Motivated the earthly conflicts that have transpired throughout the history of redemption, both small and great. This cosmic conflict motivates the trials and tribulations that we encounter in the world today and will encounter until the consummation of all things. And so here the book of Revelation chapter 12 has given us a bit of a glimpse into this. Uh, The book up to this point has described the kinds of troubles that the people of God are going to encounter on earth. But chapter 12 is saying, let's look a little bit more closely And let's consider what is going on in the spiritual realm behind all that you see and encounter in this world. And so we have been given a glimpse of that. It is particularly illuminating and very encouraging, ultimately. Uh, This chapter is illuminating, not only because of what it reveals, but also because of how it reveals it. It reveals what it reveals by way of symbol. And I've really come to love very much the symbolism of the book of Revelation. I hope this is true of you too. I love the way that this book communicates truth by way of symbolism. Uh, The weakness of symbolism as a mode of communication is that it can be very easily misunderstood and badly misconstrued. Certainly many have misunderstood and misconstrued the book of Revelation uh, in the history of the church. Uh, But the answer to this potential problem within the book of Revelation, the the problem or the potential problem of clarity, is what theologians have called the analogia fide or the analogy of faith. And put simply, the analogy of faith principle asserts that when we are 
studying portions of the Bible that might be confusing. We are to study those portions, those less clear portions of Scripture in light of and with the help of those passages that are more clear, that speak to the same subject. Uh, the underlying assumption, of course, that, that lies behind this principle, the analogy of faith principle, is that all of the scriptures hang together, that all of the scriptures have one divine author who has inspired its contents from beginning to end, and that the scriptures tell really one story. The scriptures are complex, aren't they? And there are some portions of it that are difficult to understand. But when we consider that all of it comes from God and that it tells one story and that this story hangs together, uh, it becomes easier for us to go to those places that are more clear for help in understanding those portions of Scripture that might be a bit less clear. Now, nowhere is this principle more helpful or more evident than in the book of Revelation. Uh, The book concludes the canon of Scripture. It comes at the very end of it. And you can hardly find a verse in it that does not, in one way or another, reach back into the Old Testament to pick up its symbolism from there. And so the potential problem of clarity is solved in the book of Revelation because its symbols are pulled not out of thin air, nor are their meanings hidden away in the mind of the original author who is inaccessible to us, nor are the symbols rooted entirely and ultimately in the culture in which the original author and audience lived, a culture that is largely foreign to us. But instead, the symbols are drawn mainly from where? The Old Testament scriptures and from passages that are indeed clear to us. The meaning of the symbolism of the book of Revelation is therefore understandable. The book is clear, ultimately, despite its genre and despite its use of symbol as a mode of communication. It is made clear by its divine author and its relationship to the rest of inspired scripture. And so the problem of clarity is solved then, because this book does not stand alone, but it is to be understood in the context of all of the rest of scripture. And so we are greatly helped Uh, By this, I hope you have seen this illustrated in our study of the book of Revelation. The strength of symbolism, though, as a mode of communication, is its vividness. You've heard the expression before that a picture is worth a thousand words, haven't you? And indeed, that is true. Uh, And, of course, the book of Revelation is a book and not a picture. But its words do paint pictures for us in the mind. And the pictures are vivid. They are detailed. They are colorful. They are very memorable Uh, Therefore, this wonderful book is able to say so much in a very small space. And so I've come to love the symbolism of the book of Revelation. I will admit, though, that it has frustrated me as a preacher from time to time, not because it is unclear, but because it is so wonderfully complex. And I only have a very short amount of time with you. You'll only allow me a certain amount of time for some reason. I don't don't understand it, but you only give me so much time. And yet there's so much to say. I I do feel as if I'm only able to scratch the surface with each sermon, saying just enough to hopefully set your mind off in the right direction so that you might consider these things more thoroughly. So what have we learned from chapter 12 so far? In verses 1 through 6, we were introduced to our adversary. He is the dragon, who is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He's introduced to us as the primary opponent of God, his people, and his Messiah. Though the dragon has frantically opposed God and ferociously opposed God, 
He has sought to devour the people of God so that he might devour also the Christ of God. Though these things are true, God has prevailed. Though the dragon tried with all of his might to devour the Christ from the time of his birth to the time of his crucifixion, in the end, the Christ was caught up to God and to his throne. Victory was won. Verses 1 through 6 of Revelation 12 makes this clear. In verses 7 through 12, we learn that this victory won by Christ on earth by virtue of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension has produced a victory within the heavenly realm. Satan, though he was permitted by God to accuse the elect prior to to Christ's resurrection and ascension, he was barred from heaven and was confined to the earth when Christ rose and ascended and was seated at God's right hand. This prompted heaven to celebrate, saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and of the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But what else did the voice in heaven say? In that passage, in verse 12, the voice also said this, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So heaven rejoices because of the victory won there by virtue of Christ's finished work on the cross. But we are warned Those who are living on the earth are to be warned. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, knowing that his time is short. So look at verses 13 through 17 now, where the focus returns again to the earthly side of this cosmic conflict that we have been considering. This passage picks up verses 6 and also 12 to elaborate on them further. In verse 6, we were told that after... um, that after the ascension of Christ to his heavenly throne, the woman who gave birth to the Christ fled from the dragon into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. In verse 12 we read, But woe to you, O earth, and see, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Verses 13 through 17 pick up where those verses left off in order to provide us with more detail concerning the dragon's pursuit of the woman and his wrathful activities upon the earth to which he has now been confined, having been cast from heaven as the accuser of God's elect. And so let us begin with this very simple observation. Though Christ has won the decisive victory over Satan by his death, resurrection, ascension, and session, the battle with him is not over completely. Uh, This is the obvious thing that we must begin with. It is true that Satan has been barred from heaven so that he can no longer accuse God's elect. Romans 8.33 speaks of this. This happened at Christ's resurrection and ascension. This happened just as Christ said that it would in his earthly ministry. I want you to remember the words that he spoke to his disciples just before his crucifixion. So imagine it. There is Christ on earth with his disciples. And before he goes to the cross, this is what he says to his disciples. Now is the judgment of this world. When? He says, now. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When? In the future, our future? No, now. And when I am lifted up from the earth on that cross, I will draw all people to myself. So this casting out of the ruler of the world uh, that Christ specifically spoke of in his earthly ministry is what Revelation 12, 7-12 has revealed to us. And though it is right for us to rejoice over the fact that Satan has been barred from heaven, 
his ability to accuse having been taken away by the accomplishment of our redemption. Though it is right for us to celebrate that fact, we should be sober concerning the fact that he is now confined to the earth and that he has great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Verses 13 through 17, therefore, sets our attention back upon the earth and describes in greater detail Satan's wrathful pursuit of the woman who gave birth to Christ and her many offspring. Two basic principles are communicated in this text, and they are these. First of all, Satan, being barred from heaven as the accuser of God's elect and confined to the earth, is now preoccupied with the persecution of God's people. And the second principle is this, this, it actually corresponds to the first. Christ, being raised from the dead, ascended and seated at God's right hand with all authority being given to him, is now committed to the preservation of his people. So what is Satan preoccupied with? The persecution of God's people, the pursuit of God's people. But Christ, being seated at God's right hand, is committed to the preservation of his people. These two truths, that is Satan's resolve to persecute and Christ's commitment to preserve his people are, are so intertwined in this passage that it would really feel awkward to consider them one at a time. And so I've given you the two principles from the start so that we might move through this passage verse by verse and notice these principles as they naturally emerge. Notice that in verse 13, we see Satan preoccupied with persecution. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So here he is cast down to earth and confined there, no longer able to come and to accuse God's elect before the heavenly throne. And once he is on earth, what does he do? But he gives himself to the pursuit of this woman who has given birth to the male child. Can you picture it? I mean, use your imagination. I think the book of Revelation invites us to do that very thing. And imagine Satan there standing before the throne of God, accusing God's elect as he always had. Imagine that. There he is. And he is particularly pleased now because Christ is in the grave. And so perhaps you can picture a grin on his face, you know, thinking that he had finally won the victory over the Christ. But on the third third day, Christ raises from the dead and Satan's countenance falls. Michael and the elect angels, seeing that the victory had been won by Christ, seeing that the redemption of God's elect had been earned, the legal demands that were then against us having been nailed to the cross and thus removed, they initiated war against the accuser of God's elect and cast him to the earth. Now, of course, Satan is not a physical being. He is a spiritual one. But if he were a physical being, I could almost imagine him falling from heaven to earth as if he were a shooting star or a meteor or something like that. And I can imagine him hitting the earth which, with such force that a plume of dust just rises around him. So clearly I am elaborating here and using my imagination. And can you imagine the crater that he left, you know? And so there he is, that multiple-headed dragon having hit the earth and he begins to crawl out of that crater and he is angry. He is upset. He realizes that he has been dealt that decisive blow and that he has been ultimately defeated. He has, he has taken upon himself that mortal wound and he knows it's only a, ma- a matter of time. And so he crawls out of that pit and what does he do but in great fury and great wrath he begins to look for someone to attack. 
He knows that he cannot win the battle ultimately, but he is ready to devour someone, being so agitated by being cast from that place in heaven that he enjoyed, that God permitted him to have uh, for so long. And who does he set his sights on then? Well, naturally, he begins to look around and he sets his eyes upon that woman who had given birth to the Christ. And he begins to pursue her. Who does this woman represent? This question's already been answered in previous sermons, but I do want to spend a bit of time on this to make sure that we know who this woman represents. She symbolizes Mary, the mother of Jesus, doesn't she? For she was the one who, in fact, gave birth to the Christ. But what I want you to notice is that this woman clearly symbolizes something more than Mary, the mother of Jesus. Remember that this woman was described in 12.1 as being clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This language is used elsewhere in the scripture to symbolize the people of Israel collectively. You would have to go and read Genesis 37 to see what I am talking about here. And certainly you can understand why it is proper to speak of Israel prior to the coming of Christ as being pregnant with the Christ and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. This was true of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in a most literal way. This one individual woman was blessed by God and she was privileged to literally be pregnant with the Christ. And she was blessed by God to literally experience the pains and agony of giving birth to him and bringing him into this world. And so clearly she is in view here in this passage. But it was also true of the people of Israel, metaphorically speaking. God promised that from them the Christ would come. And as they awaited his arrival, uh, remember that they did suffer many birth pains, if you will. And they did suffer much agony of giving birth, if you will, metaphorically speaking. Remember uh, that to them, the promises concerning the Christ were, were made. Remember God's promise to Abraham when he said, For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. That was God's promise to Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish people um, and our father as well. He said to him, Look at the land, see it. I will give it to you and to your offspring forever. Now, when we come to the pages of the New Testament and we read Paul's words concerning this prophet, uh, this promise, and when we consider Paul's words concerning this pro- promise and others like it, here is what Paul says. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, Paul says, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That is Galatians 3.16. What is Paul's point in this text? His point is that although Abraham would have many offspring, uh, the singular offspring can function as a collective noun referring to many, yet the promise to Abraham was really focused upon a particular offspring, a particular offspring in the singular sense. And of course, this promise was ultimately about the Christ. The promise to Abraham was that in the process of time, after many thousands were born to him, some of them being kings, One of his descendants would arrive, who is Christ, the Messiah. 
That was ultimately the promise being made to Abraham. He would inherit the land forever and ever. The New Testament makes it clear that the land he would inherit would not be a sliver of land on this earth, but the whole earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Even Abraham knew this in his day, for by faith, we read from Hebrews 11.10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so indeed, the people of Israel, from the time of Abraham onward, were collectively pregnant with the Christ, the promise having been made to them that from their loins the Messiah would emerge. Uh, This is why the first verse of the New Testament, by the way, says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What is the point except for that this promise made to Israel, specifically to Abraham and David, before has come true. The Christ has been born. He is Jesus of Nazareth. And so the woman of Revelation 12 symbolizes not just Mary, but also Old Covenant Israel. The people gave birth to Jesus. And so I suppose we could say that theirs was the longest pregnancy in the history of the world, lasting some 2,000 years from the time of Abraham onward. And it is also right for us to push this back further than Abraham all the way to Adam and Eve. Was it not they who first encountered the attacks of this dragon? And having fallen from their state of innocency, was it not they who heard the first promise of the gospel when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So indeed, the woman of Revelation 12 also symbolizes Eve, who is the mother of all living, who carried within her the seed of the promised Messiah. So as you can see that the symbolism of the woman of Revelation 12 is very complex, having as its referent Mary, the mother of Jesus, the first woman Eve, and Israel, the nation of Israel collectively. But we must also recognize that the church is included in her. This becomes exceedingly clear when we remember how the New Testament scriptures answer the question, who is the true Israel of God? Or who are the true children of Abraham would be another way to put it. Without a doubt, the woman of Revelation 12 symbolizes Israel. This has already been established. But who is the true Israel? That is the question we have to ask. Who is the true Israel? Who are the true offspring of Abraham? And the answer that is so clearly given in the New Testament is that true Israel and the true children of Abraham are those who have faith in Christ both from amongst the ethnic Jews and also from amongst the Gentiles. How the dispensationalists miss this point, I do not know, but they miss it entirely, and it's very destructive. I want you to listen to Paul in Galatians 3, 6 through 9, for example. Just listen to how direct the statement is. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Did you hear it? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Could it be more clear that the true children of Abraham are those who have faith in Christ the Messiah? Later in Galatians 3.26-29 through 29, we read, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you are Christ's, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to what? Heirs according to promise. And so how can it be that Gentiles who do not have Abraham as their father according to the flesh are called Abraham's offspring? How can that be? Well, it is because they are united by faith to Christ Jesus, who is Abraham's offspring in the singular sense. We are heirs, therefore, not according to the flesh, but according to the, to the promises of God that were made, first of all, to Eve, and then progressively more clear after that even to Israel until the Christ came. Even under the old covenant, brothers and sisters, even under the old covenant, a distinction was made between Israel according to the flesh only and true spiritual Israel. That is to say, the Israel of faith, sometimes referred to as the remnant within Israel. Listen to Paul in Romans 9, 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Speaking of the um, predominant rejection of Jesus as the Christ by the Jewish people. He's saying that there's not failure here. The word of God has not failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Did you just hear that? Not all who are descended from Israel, who have descended from Abraham as their father according to the flesh. Not all who are Israel in that sense are the true children or belong to Israel uh, truly. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and here he quotes from Genesis 21, 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh. Did you hear it? It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so you need to recognize this, brothers and sisters, that even under the old covenant and surely under the new, it is those who have faith in Christ, either in the promise of his coming ushered offered up beforehand or in the good news concerning his coming, that we now have. It is only those who have faith in Christ who are the true children of Abraham and the true children of God. This is why, by the way, at the end of his letter to the Galatian churches, Paul pronounced blessing upon those churches who were primarily Gentile, mind you. He pronounced blessing upon them, saying, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What does Paul call the church made up of primarily Gentiles here? He calls them the Israel of God. He refers to the church as the Israel of God. So when we consider, therefore, the woman of Revelation 12, it is right for us to see in her Mary, the mother of Jesus, also the first woman, Eve, and also Israel under the old covenant, But we should not fail to recognize that this woman symbolizes the true Israel of God and not Israel according to the flesh. And not Israel according to the flesh. This is important. It really is. And I feel the need to pause here because I know when my preaching starts to sound like you're being overflowed with just a flood of information. You do trust me that I'll eventually get to the point, don't you? I will. This is incredibly important Um, for many reasons. One, we cannot properly interpret this text until we settle the issue. Who does this woman symbolize? But also, in our day and age, evangelical Christians fail to answer this basic question correctly. Who are the people of God in the world today? They miss it entirely. 
many evangelical Christians do, especially of the dispensational sort. And it's a serious error that we need to remedy. We are to confess that this woman of Revelation 12 symbolizes Israel, but we are to maintain that she symbolizes the true Israel of God, both under the Old Testament and the New. Not Israel according to the flesh, that is, Israel ethnically speaking only, but the true Israel of God, those who have faith in the promises of God and in the Christ. Um, I am not saying that Satan does not also harm those who are in unbelief from amongst the Jews and Gentiles. He's a murderer and a liar from the beginning, and he torments even those who belong to him. That has already been established. But the thing revealed in Revelation 12 is that Satan wages a special kind of war against the true people of God. Do you see it? He wages a special kind of war against God's true people in the world. His objective under the old covenant and the new has been to snuff out God's elect remnant so that none remain. Though Satan does indeed torment even those who belong to him, this is the kind of master that he is, he does not seek to devour them in the same way that he seeks to devour God's elect. Why would Satan pursue and seek to devour Israel according to the flesh? If they are Israel according to the flesh only, then they already belong to him. Do you, do you see it? They already belong to the evil one if they are only Israel according to the flesh. But he is particularly concerned to devour the true Israel, those who belong to God and to his Christ. Um, he is particularly concerned to devour them. Concerning Israel according to the flesh only, here is what Jesus said. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. That is what he said to the Jewish people, ethnically speaking, who remained in unbelief. You were of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. You and I, brothers and sisters, if we have faith in Christ, are the offspring of Abraham. We are heirs, not according to the flesh, but according to the promise. The woman of Revelation 12, therefore, symbolizes the true Israel of God. She gave birth to the Christ, and she remains in the world to this present day. She is identified not by her DNA, but by her profession of faith in Jesus the Messiah. The situation here is almost completely the opposite of how things were under the Old Covenant. At the time, at that time, Israel enjoyed very little diversity, ethnically speaking. Think of prior to the coming of Christ, Old Covenant. Israel enjoyed very little diversity, ethnically speaking, but she was far too diverse as it pertained to her faith. There were many who did not believe within the Old Covenant Israel. But under the New Covenant, Israel enjoys a great deal of ethnic diversity. The Gentiles have now been grafted into her. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And new covenant Israel also enjoys total uniformity as it pertains to her faith. Israel is ethnically diverse now. The gospel is to be preached to all nations and then the end will come. And yet she is pure as it pertains to her faith. There are no non-believers within the new covenant as there were under the old. Do you see it? It's a tremendous age in which we live. I'm tempted here to read from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where this radical transition was prophesied ahead of time. I will leave that to you, though. Um, brothers and sisters, uh, this is the covenant 
under which you and I live if we have Christ as Lord. This is the covenant that Christ ratified in his blood. The partakers of this covenant are ethnically diverse. Jew and Gentile are rightly called the offspring of Abraham and the Israel of God if they have believed upon Christ. But the partakers of this covenant are pure in faith. All who are within it truly know God and have had their sins forgiven. They have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. The old covenant was made with Israel according to the flesh, but in her were found elect and non-elect, belief and unbelief. The new covenant is made only with those who believe. They have the law written within, within their, within their hearts by regeneration. They know the Lord, having had their sins forgiven. So the woman of Revelation 12, I have sufficiently beaten this to death. I can see it now. Um, also symbolizes the church. Uh, that is to say, all who have faith in Jesus the Christ, the promised seed of Abraham. And notice that Satan pursues her and wants to devour her. That is what he is preoccupied with, the persecution of God's people. Uh, to state this all a little bit differently, this is not talking about some regathered um, group in the future, namely ethnic Israel. This is talking about you and me. Satan is on our heels. He is seeking to devour us. This becomes quite practical then for us. Notice that in verse 14, God is preoccupied with the preservation of his people. There we read, But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Uh, the symbolism here is also rich and complex. And as usual, the meaning of the symbolism is found within the pages of the Old Testament. I'm not going to linger very long here for the sake of time. Instead, I'm going to say only a few things, and I'm going to say them very quickly. First of all, notice the most obvious thing. God is here promising to care for his people in the midst of trouble. The woman who symbolizes God's elect is said to be nourished by God. Who is this promise to then, in case you didn't get it before? Future ethnic Israel regathered before the end of time. The promise is for you and for me. It's for the church of God, all who have faith in the Christ. And what is God promising? But to care for his people in the world, even though the evil one pursues them. Secondly, notice the time frame. She will be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Uh, this three-and-a-half-year period of time has appeared again and again in the book of Revelation, as you know. Sometimes it is stated as 1,260 days, sometimes as 42 months, and here as a time and times and half a time. I have much to say here, but for the sake of time, I will move on and encourage you to go back and read Revelation chapter 11, where, remember, the temple, though the holy place be protected by God, the courtyard is left to the trampling of the nations, and how long is that going to happen for except this three and a half year period of time and then immediately after that we're introduced to these two witnesses who do their witnessing and then they are killed and they are raised how long is that going to happen for except for this three and a half year period of time already the woman has been we've been told that the woman is going to flee to the wilderness for 1260 days or three and a half years according to the jewish calendar um, and again she is said to be in the wilderness for a time times and half a time the meaning is clear this period of time symbolizes the age of the church where the church is going to experience persecution and is going to be pursued by the evil one. It's based off of Daniel 7. It's also based upon uh, encampments listed in Numbers 33, 5 through 49, where the people of Israel are there described as um, in the wilderness, remember, having been 
delivered out of Egypt and before they entered into the promised land. If you read Numbers 33, 5 through 49, you'll see that they actually uh, uh, experienced a series of 42 encampments. They would camp at this place and then they'd pack up and they'd move on and they'd camp at another place. And there's a whole list of them there. How many encampments then did the people of Israel experience in that time in the wilderness? 42. And what is one of the ways that the book of Revelation refers to this period of three and a half years? 42 months. And so the imagery is very clear. This is a period of time where the people of God are going to wander in the wilderness, where the people of God are going to suffer tribulation. They're going to be tested there in that wilderness place, but they're going to be preserved and protected by God Almighty. This is referring to the age in which you and I live now. We are sojourners and exiles on the earth even today. Thirdly, notice that verse 14 portrays God's preservation of his church in language reminiscent of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. I find this very interesting. The woman of Revelation 12 is described as one who is fleeing from the dragon. Can you picture this then? You have to use your imagination, I'm telling you, with the book of Revelation. There she is. She's given birth to the Christ. He lived, he died, he rose again. He's ascended and seated at God's right hand. But the woman remains, and there she is running for her life, off into the wilderness. And who is at her heels? except the dragon. Now, this becomes interesting when we realize that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is described in the Old Testament with some frequency as being a dragon. Read Ezekiel 29.3 and also Ezekiel 32.2 for an example of this. Now, think of the exodus, the first exodus. What happened except that God's people were redeemed by God, brought out of Egypt. And as they began to go out of Egypt, what did Pharaoh, king of Egypt, do except change his mind concerning letting the people go? And he began to pursue them. And they found themselves trapped against the Red Sea, right? And so the image is, is it mirrors, uh, the, the images mirror uh, one another. And we are told here in Revelation 12 that this woman being pursued by the dragon, having experienced this second and much greater exodus, was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent. This too is exodus language. For example, when God reminds Israel of his having rescued them from Egypt, this is how he says it. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Exodus 19.4. And notice lastly that this woman of Revelation 12 uh, flees to the wilderness. She flees to the wilderness. She flies from the serpent into the wilderness. And at the Exodus, Israel was brought into the wilderness. It was both a place of testing and a place of protection for them. Listen to Deuteronomy 1.30-33. The Lord your God, this is God speaking to Israel, whom he has redeemed out of Egypt after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. What therefore is the meaning of Revelation 12:14? It is that though the dragon pursue the church God will provide for her and protect her as she, as she sojourns in this world, just as he provided for and protected Israel in that wilderness place after redeeming her from Egypt. He will fight for us and carry us just as a man carries his son, bringing us safely into the eternal promised land. 
That is what this text is saying to us. In verse 15, Satan's preoccupation with persecution is highlighted again, but in more detail. We are told that the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. So visualize this scene. The woman running for her life. The dragon is on her heels. And then you can kind of picture this. A a dragon that is pursuing and then kind of crouches down in order to consume someone. What do you expect to come out of a dragon's mouth, by the way? Fire. That's something maybe from our culture. Um, But here instead, uh, a, a, a torrent of water issues forth from the dragon's mouth. It is a great river and his objective is to sweep away this woman in in a flood. I wish I had the time to remind you of all the places in the Old Testament where the people of God found themselves threatened by water. Think of it. Just for a moment, I'll just kind of pause. Think of, of all of the times in which God's people found themselves threatened by water. Remember that before God brought the earth into its present form, the earth was a a place that we could not inhabit. Why? Because the earth was covered in in water. Think of the days of Noah when wickedness on the earth increased and there is Noah and his, righteous Noah and his family and God preserves them and brings them through the water. I can make many other references, uh, but I think the thing that we must have in mind here, especially given all of the reference to uh, the, the Exodus, is the Red Sea. And the way in which the people of Israel, after having fled from Egypt, being delivered by God and pursued by that dragon Pharaoh, found themselves pressed up against the Red Sea and in a very helpless situation. They thought that they were going to be devoured by the dragon Pharaoh. That's what they thought, but yet God delivered them. We might also think of the floodwaters of the Jordan, which blocked Israel from entering into that promised land. There they were on the border of it, and yet they could not enter in to the promised land because it was flood season. They could not cross the river. In both instances, what happened? Except for that God divided the waters of the Red Sea so that the people might walk safely through, and also the waters of the Jordan were stopped up upstream so that the people of God might um, pass in to the land promised to them. We should also recognize that the water of Revelation 12 issues forth from the mouth of the dragon. And this is not the first time that something unnatural has issued forth from someone's mouth. Uh, Remember that Christ was at first described to us as one who had a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. And what did that symbolize? It's not literal, of course, but it symbolizes the fact that he will judge By the word of his mouth. And here we see that floodwaters are pouring out of the mouth of the dragon. And this symbolizes the fact that Satan seeks to devour the church today by issuing forth lies. And this is what he has always done. Remember that he did this very thing from the very beginning of time. He has been called recently that ancient serpent serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And what is he? He is the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And remember the assault that the serpent brought against Eve at the very beginning. How did he defeat her? Except that he came subtly and he began to, to lie to her. He began to tell her lies and to try to deceive her. 
And indeed, that is what Christ warns. He talks about how Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan assaults the church by seeking to drown her in a flood of lies. This is his tactic. This is what he does even in the world to this present day. But in verse 16, we are again reminded of God's commitment to preserve his people. We read, But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. What did God do for Israel when she was hindered by the floodwaters of the Jordan from crossing into the promised land? He cut off the water far upstream so that the people passed over, and the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Joshua 3 16 through 17. Do you see the picture here? What is the promise there for? God is going to preserve his people and bring, these, bring them safely into the eternal promised land, just as he did for Israel in a typological, symbolic way under the old covenant. It was a historical thing, of course, but it fu- functioned typologically. What did God do for Israel when that dragon Pharaoh pursued her into the wilderness, blocking her against the waters of the Red Sea? Listen to this. Exodus 14, 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went on in the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. In Moses' song concerning this great act of deliverance, when he reflects upon it, he, he wrote a song, a long song, in Exodus 15. Here is what he says. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods who are no gods at all? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Do you hear the language that corresponds to the language of Revelation 12? The language is the same. The earth swallowed up the flood waters that issued from the dragon's mouth. And thus, the woman was delivered. And then in verse 17, we return once more to focus upon Satan's preoccupation with the persecution of God's people. The dragon, seeing that once again his efforts have been thwarted and the people of God have been preserved and rescued by God, uh, then became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. I think what we have here is some distinction between the early church and the church born from her within Revelation 12. I think the woman herself symbolizes particularly the people of God, especially those first disciples of Christ who were pursued by the woman in a most intense way. But here we see that the narrative gives way to a focus upon her offspring. And who are her offspring except all the ones who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's you and I. And the serpent continues to pursue them and us even to this present day. After we are told uh, that the woman, the dragon continues to pursue the offspring of the woman, we are simply told that the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. It's kind of a, a strange scene, right? We're being left off with an emphasis not on God's preservation of his people, but of, of Satan's continued 
activity of, of, of persecution. And there he is being left on the sand of the sea. Uh, it makes perfect sense when you realize what Revelation 13 and onward is going to do. We're going to be introduced to two beasts. One of them rises out of the sea and the other arises out of the earth. And so in Revelation 13 and following, we're going to have an even greater and more detailed description of the ways in which the dragon pursues the woman who represents the people of God living throughout all of all time onto the consummation. Do you get it? That was a lot. I, there are some sermons where I feel like saying, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not sorry, really. Um, if anything, I'm sorry for sometimes my sermons not being as clear and as structured as they could. But, but I'm not sorry. I, I, it is good for you to learn to pay attention and to think clearly about these things. Um, but do you understand what the text means? It's not talking about future ethnic Israel. My goodness, to miss the point any more severely. I can't even imagine it. Um, and it's not just talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Here is a picture of you and I. And all who have faith in Christ and the realities that we experience day by day. The reality is this. Satan pursues us and he is vicious and he is angry and ferocious. But God has promised to preserve his church, his true church, on till the end of time. I want to take a moment just to offer a couple of suggestions for application. So that we be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. First of all, we do need to be sober concerning our enemy who seeks our destruction. But in particular, the thing that this text reveals is we need to be sober and alert concerning his lies. Concerning his lies. Um, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, 44. He wars against the people of God by trying to sweep them away with a flood of of lies. This was true of Eve in the beginning. It was true also for Israel. So many times were they threatened by false prophets who would distort the truth of God and who would speak not being inspired by God or led by God or finding themselves under the authority of God, but they would speak out of their own minds and out of their own hearts and would thus lead the people away to destruction. That is how the evil one functions even to this day. And I think it is so important that we consider this truth carefully, especially in our day. In my perception of things, I imagine the church being up to her neck in floodwaters when it comes to the lies of Satan. I'm convinced of it. That the gospel has been so distorted in our day, has been so, excuse the pun, watered down in our day, that the church finds herself up to her neck in a flood of Satan's lies. I have hope that God will preserve his church and preserve that remnant where it exists. But I'm fearful for the church today. There are so many false teachers who either refuse to say what God has said, or who say things that God has not said. The church is filled with false teachings. Also, our culture is filled with lies too. The threat comes from within the church, but it also presses in upon us from within the culture. Think of, the young, think of our young people and all of the battles that they face growing up in this culture with all of the lies that constantly bombard them concerning what is right and what is wrong. Indeed, the onslaught is continuous. Indeed, the floodwaters are like a torrent. Indeed, we are threatened greatly 
by these lies and we must be aware of them. It may even be that the evil one is speaking lies to your own mind and to your own heart. He may be seeking to undermine your faith. He may be seeking to plant seeds of doubt concerning God's love for you. He may be seeking to sow discord within the body of Christ by planting a seed of doubt concerning the love of the brethren for you. I can go on and on and on, and I see it all the time, the way that Christians are threatened by the lies of Satan, be it from our culture or from false teachers or even from just temptations that come and assault you individually. And we need to learn, brothers and sisters, to be aware of the lies of Satan. And how do we identify them except that we know God's word? What has God said? What has God said? And when we pay attention to God's word and when we give care to know what he has said to us, then we are able to identify the lies of the evil one when they approach us. We must take care here to recognize the lies of Satan for what they are. Secondly, I do want you to take comfort in the doctrine of preservation. While it is true that you and I must persevere and be alert and sober in this life, it is also true that God has promised to preserve his people. He will fight for you. I want you to listen to Exodus 14, 13 through 14, as Moses is emphasizing this very point to the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Here the people are being encouraged by the doctrine of preservation that God will fight for his people. And I am sure of this, brothers and sisters, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Thirdly, and with all these things in mind, we also need to learn to walk in this world with a humble kind of confidence, a humble and sober kind of confidence. What then shall we say to these things? And I know that I have read this passage probably ten times in the last five weeks, but I will read it once more before we move on to Revelation chapter 13. If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, the conclusion is this. And all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let us pray. Father, I do pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that you would give them minds to understand the truth of your word. We thank you for this passage that is so vivid and the way that it symbolizes and illustrates the the Christian life and the troubles that we face within it. Lord, the battle is real. We know it. And we know that the evil one does seek to devour us. Lord, may we be aware of his tactics Uh, that primarily he seeks to sweep us away in a flood of lies with his deception. Lord, make us mindful of these things. May we believe the truth of your word only. May we set our feet down firmly upon that rock. Lord, may we be unmovable standing there. I do pray, Lord, that you would put your word within us, help us to understand it and to live by it. Uh, May we uh, persevere until the very end. Lord, we thank you that you have promised to preserve us. We say this in Christ's name. Amen.